Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Most of my life, I've never had any secrets to weigh down my heart. The only thing is when I was 24, I gave birth to a girl and drowned her. Even now, I regret it. At the time, we were so poor that we had not a thing in our house. There was just a chicken, which I was saving for after I gave birth. Right before the moment of birth came, though, somebody ate my chicken. At the same time, my father was in Hangzhou, and he sent someone home to my stepmother, urging her, the Chen's daughter, referring to me, has given birth. Send someone immediately to look after her, supposing that something would be brought for me. Eventually, my stepmother sent a servant boy, Chang Shou, to come and serve me, empty-handed. Instead of helping me, he found some food and made it for himself. I was at my wit's end. My mother and father had given birth to me, But even after growing up, I still had to suffer in this way. As for this mere fleck of foam, what would be the point of raising her? It would only be in vain. No good for me and no good for her. So I made up my mind to drown her. After losing so much blood during birth, I couldn't get up. So I ordered the servant girl from your grandparents' house, Sishio, to drown it. She put it into shallow water, but it didn't die the whole night long. I was so furious, I forced myself to get up and shut the door in order to drown her. I turned my head, closed my eyes, and then did it. I couldn't look. Alas, how could I have done such a cruel thing? Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. What I've just read to you is an account by a woman named Ye looking back on a time in her life when she made a decision to do something that she regretted later, and that is drowning her infant daughter. This is an account that opens the first body chapter of the new book by Michelle King, Between Birth and Death, Female Infanticide in 19th Century China. This came out with Stanford University Press in 2014. Now, I opened with this to give you a sense of the really arresting nature of many of the sources and many of the accounts that populate this book on perceptions of infanticide in the 19th century. The book looks at the emergence of infanticide as an object that's specifically associated with China in the context of an imperial 19th century and in texts that range from French French books on China and on infanticide to Chinese morality plays to morality books, um, images, illustrated devotional cards, and all kinds of really wonderful image and text-based materials that together form a really unusual and a very vibrant kind of an archive. So it's a book that is both of clear relevance and it's a really fascinating story for anybody interested in situating historically a topic of profound political social concern right now but it's also really fascinating for any of us who are interested in the craft of history, of what it can look like to, in part as a result of careful sleuthing and in part as a result of serendipity, 
amass an archive that is extraordinarily rich and very, very, as I put it earlier, unusual, both for the nature of the stories that it includes, the kinds of perspectives that it opens us um, into, but also the kinds of ways of using image and text for rhetorical, propagandistic, philanthropic, and didactic purposes. It's a really wonderful book. Um, I had a, a really great time reading it and talking with Michelle about it, and I hope you have a chance to both read the book um, and to also um, take your time over some of the accounts like the one that I just read to you um, and really think about them in the context of this larger story because they're very affecting, as is the book itself. Um, so I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Michelle King about her new book, Between Birth and Death, Female Infanticide in 19th Century China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Michelle, and thanks very, very much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michelle, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the field of modern Chinese history? Well, um, I am myself Chinese-American, uh, born here in the United States, um, but I sort of grew up um, understanding some Chinese, but I didn't really start learning a lot of Chinese until actually um, I graduated from college and taught English for two years in Hunan, um, in Changsha. Um, and it was at that time that I thought, oh, I, I kind of enjoy teaching, I think I might like to learn more, do more with East Asia. And um, I went back and got a master's um, in East Asian studies, and that kind of segued into studying history. So um, uh, in the course of those graduate studies, I really got interested in gender history. And that drives um, uh, sort of the, the source or the inspiration for this particular book as well. Great. Great. So the book that we're talking about today looks at perceptions of, and you make the important distinction early on in the book that you're not talking about practices of, but rather perceptions of female infanticide in China in the 19th century. And it does a lot more than that as well. Um, and we'll get to that as we get to the individual chapters. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this particular topic? What brought you to this as a research focus for your work? Well, as I mentioned, um, you know, I went to graduate school uh, knowing that I was interested in gender history, um, and I had a, a few different ideas about kinds of things that I wanted to do for my um, doctoral work. But um, I, I, you know, it's almost as if I'm not even sure what the initial spark was for thinking about infanticide. I think I was just shocked that there was no book on infanticide at the time that I started. Um, not in, not really in Chinese and not really in English. And I was like, this is a huge topic. How could there be so little um, that's out there? You know, people have this natural association uh, between the concept of infanticide and China. How could it be that no scholar has really tried to do a history of this? Um, and, and in the course of writing the book, I think I answered my own question because it's really hard. Um, that's one of the, that's one of the answers. But, um, at the time when I was just starting out very innocent, um, I just thought this is a huge, huge hole that I think, um, uh, deserves to have more, you know, written about it. And, um, and then 
the first thing I found was this 19th century French text by this um, French Jesuit missionary uh, Gabriel Palatra, who forms a you know major part of the book. And this text itself was one of those texts that you see it. And you are drawn in, and you just have to know how on earth did this crazy thing come to be? Because it's got French, it's um, it's uh, it's it's not printed, but kind of lithographed, so that it looks like handwriting, French handwriting. Um, it has Chinese text in it. It has these illustrations in it, and it was just this um, mishmash of rich and crazy, wonderful nineteenth-century things that. I just had to dig to the bottom of the mystery of this text, and that kind of then was the the initial thread that I began to unspool as I, you know, kind of unwound the mystery of what I thought all this was all about. That's so fascinating that a, a fascination with the text brought you in to the project because in all of the chapters, one of the really beautiful things that comes out um, consistently, and this is in every single chapter, is yeah. how fascinating um, so much of the source material is that you're working on. And so we're definitely going to talk about mm-hmm. the Palacho text, but also some of the other really, really cool sources that form the backbone of this study. Mm-hmm. So the study did start off as a dissertation project, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So can you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any major transformations in the move from dissertation to book in the structure of the work, the way you were thinking about the kinds of arguments you were making, or anything else that stands out of note about that process for you? It's like writing another book. <laughs> it's totally different. It's, I mean, in a way, totally different, and then in a way, the seeds of everything were you know, already in the dissertation, but um, beyond adding a ton of new actual source material and information and all of that to, I think, every single one of the chapters, yeah, the huge amount. There was no chapter that remained largely untouched at all. Everything was, you know, reconceptualized. I think maybe I had the same opening line and that's about it. <laughs> same opening scenario from Sushi, but that's about it. Um, um, and I think it just takes, I really do think it's, it's like the, the process between writing a dissertation and writing a book. It is a matter of digesting this material that the first time it comes out as a dissertation, there's no way, unless maybe you're a genius or something, it could be fully formed already because you've just encountered the material. You're in a rush to get it on paper. Um, you know, you're kind of, um, under a different set of constraints. And then when it comes time to being a book, you, you really, or at least I really wanted it to be this um, act of communication with anyone who's interested in the subject. And um, I really wanted it to be something that, you know, you don't need to be a China historian to be able to read and get something out of the book. And I, and I you know, that's kind of a conscious thing on my part. Um, I want to communicate with people. That's part of, you know, why I write the way I do and what I want to do. Um, so in, in that process of change, I mean, when I started, I honestly also did not know what was I going to do. I knew it needed to be something more, but I didn't know exactly how that more would come about. And, you know, it's the typical process where you give it to some very generous other scholars who then give you some feedback on your dissertation those form some starting points to think about how should I, you know, reframe it. And I think um, I had a writing coach once that said, 
you know, when you're thinking about these kinds of large projects, a lot of the time you're really just circling around the same core ideas, but each time you circle, you're, you're articulating that core principle in an ever more clear fashion. And so that's what I found the process to be, that, you know, the same impulses that had always been there um, result in the final book, but um, the, the process itself is just one where you're growing convinced yourself that, okay, this is what I really want to say. <laughs> this is really what the book is about. And just, you know, kind of continually reposing that question to yourself um, again and again and having a lot of people read it and give you feedback. Um, you know, that's, that's how, that's how the process happens. Um, you, you think you don't know what you're doing. So you start somewhere and then that somewhere leads to something else. And then slowly over time, you know, you have something that much more resembles a book than it did before. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated. I won't ask you um, too much about it now so that we can get to Sushir and mm-hmm. wonderful sources, but I think it's um, mentioning a writing coach is actually really fascinating. That's something mm-hmm. that a lot of my colleagues um, right now in my department and I are thinking of, you know, mm-hmm. ways to, especially once you're um, well along on the tenure track and tenure, mm-hmm. ways to keep your writing life active, um, yep. make progress. And this is an idea yep. that's come up a lot. So I'm actually yep. really interested in hearing about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the introduction to the book opens with this account that you just mentioned. Um, this is a description of the drowning of a child by Sushir. It's mm-hmm. very affecting. It's a, an extraordinarily arresting way to open up this um, book because it really gives us in fleshy detail the sort of a picture of what's happening that takes us from this this term right that may not have much embodied resonance in fantasy mm-hmm. and really gives us a picture of what's actually happening in this mm-hmm. drowning of a child mm-hmm. now you segue from this to introduce a more general problematic of the book and that is the fact that the particular and very exceptional relationship of china with female infanticide this mm-hmm. is a relationship that you've talked a little bit about already was reinforced and has been reinfor- reinforced through popular media and historical studies. It's often treated as kind of a fixture mm-hmm. of Chinese history mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily um, change over time, whereas mm-hmm. it's treated as a historical curiosity in other societies, right? Mm-hmm. And so you take us through these kinds of assumptions about um, the connection between infanticide and China, and the book is going to then, and this is something that you raise in the introduction, ask, you know, what accounts for this selective remembering and forgetting? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. did female infanticide become Chinese and how did it become Chinese and we're going to find part of the answer as we explore the chapters of the book being embedded in the in imperialist context of the 19th century um, so we're going to we'll get to that story as we unfold the chapters of the book now that's a great great introduction of the introduction thanks awesome. <laughs> my meta introduction <laughs> yeah that's okay. great So one of the things, and we've already talked a little bit about this, um, but one of the wonderful things about every chapter in the book are these fabulous sources that come up. And there are images, there are catechisms, there are cards. You talk about um, just all kinds of really wonderful images and texts that are read, that are recited, that are enunciated, um, and that are circulated over the course of this story. So let's maybe um, jump in by talking a little bit about that. What are, for you, some of the most important 
important and exciting sources um, that you found when you were working on this project? And what was the process of actually amassing your archive? Mm -hmm. Um, What was that like for you? Were there any particular aspects of that process that um, stand out as being particularly important for you? Well, I can start by saying that um, when I was a graduate student, I remember that we had a workshop and um, we had some uh, Chinese scholars invited, I mean, Chinese scholars from China, um, and we kind of shared our work and talked about our work in progress. And I hadn't yet started my actual research for this dissertation. But at the time when I, you know, explained I was interested in infanticide, the, you know, the scholar immediately replied, well, what kind of sources are you going to use? And, you know, that was the same thing that my advisor asked and other people, you know, this sounds really great, but what are you going to use to actually write about it? So I knew from the start that the difficult thing is actually pinpointing this uh, really kind of ephemeral material because a lot of what I actually end up using, these morality books, you know, they're not special, rare things. They're things that you would, you know, would have seen maybe in, I don't know, discarded or, you know, no one would necessarily kind of treasure and save these things. So, um, uh, when I started, I had this 19th century text, which um, itself excerpts from different um, morality books, um, Chinese morality books. And I tried to track down as many as I could, but, um, you know, in various co- collections all around the world, but, um, but it wasn't enough. You know, it was just here and there, maybe one or two or something like that. But I really wanted to be able to say, something more about this genre of text and these texts as a genre um, that is morality books about infanticide. So um, the, the, um, the French missionary, French Jesuit missionary, who, whose text kind of launched me on this whole thing, Palatra, he um, was a missionary at Xu Jiahui um, in, in what they called Zikawei or Sikawei um, in um, in Shanghai in the 19th century. And the Xu Jiahui Library Collection has now been taken under the management of the Shanghai Municipal Library. And so um, it's still this beautiful building. You know, they preserved the um, kind of the that, that French architecture from the period. Um, and at the time I went, it didn't have air conditioning, so it's kind of hot to work there in the summer. You're dripping in sweat and you know, trying to not drip on these books. But anyway... Um, uh, but that the library collection, as it stood when I went there for my original research, um, was only foreign language materials. That is to say, Western language uh, materials that had been in the Shuja, original Xu Jiahui, um, you know, Jesuit collection. The rest of the materials in Chinese, which I knew had to be in that collection. Um, were nowhere to be seen. The librarians told me, not there, there's nothing there, there's nothing in Chinese, it's just Western languages. Um, but I kept asking, and I kept asking, and um, the librarian finally told me, well, actually, there's a storage facility. And, um, uh, you know, he allowed me, essentially, of this uncatalogued Chinese material in the Xu Jiahui collection. Mm-hmm. And he allowed me to um, go there to look for 
um, what I knew, at least in 1957, based on an old catalog of the Shijoe collection, um, had been in there. That is to say, several different titles, many, many titles related to infanticide that Palatra himself had used to write his 19th century book. So I was given one hour to look oh in this uncatalogued collection. There's no markings on any of the shelves. It's all covered in this thick black dust. Um, and I don't know, miraculously, I found the texts. I just, you know, it was according to the old Subu classification. And um, I just, I don't know, I think it was just, you know, how some things just sometimes in your life just work out. That just worked out for me. And, you know, within the hour he had given me, I found this whole stack of texts that I could then use to um, say much, much more about this genre of morality books about infanticide um, that forms kind of the, the, the background or the basis for my Chinese sources on infanticide, which are otherwise just very, very ephemeral and difficult to locate and find. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. So, so talk about talking about ephemerality and, and difficulty in finding things. Yeah. Um, this actually brings us really beautifully, I think, really nicely into the first chapter. That the first chapter opens with the example of a woman. This is a woman named Ye, and I mentioned this with a um, in terms of a link between ephemerality and difficulty in finding things because it's always really wonderful when we see, at least in some way, um, the sort of individual human figures, right, in stories like this. Um, it's often these figures tend to fade into the background, and so I think it's really great that you're bringing this up front and center. So it opens with this woman named Ye, who drowned her daughter immediately after birth. Um, so it's, again, a very arresting image. So can you maybe start us off by um, introducing her for us? Who is this woman, and what's important about the nature of her and her story in terms of the larger arguments that you're making in this chapter? Well, um, she is basically uh, uh, the mother of a well-known philosopher, Chen Chue, um, kind of from the end of the Ming, transitioning into the Qing. And uh, her story is really interesting and important because um, it's the only thing I was able to find that um, talked about an actual experience of infanticide. Like almost all the other sources I have are talking about the practice of infanticide as a general phenomenon in Chinese society. And very, very rarely do you actually have a source that's about a specific case. And this woman is narrating her own uh, drowning of her own daughter. Um, and, uh, and it's just it's the only one I've ever found, and it's from the perspective of a woman, which is also completely rare. Now, the really interesting thing is this um, woman's voice is embedded in a, a larger um, text by her son. So it's her son that's actually written down, you know, this retelling of his mother um, about this episode. And plus the the, the whole kind of narrative that it's framed within is about the relationship between her and her husband. And the essay itself is in honor of and in memory of um, this philosopher's father. So again, it's this male-centered universe in which we're finding these uh, gendered texts. But um, it's I begin with it and I focus on it because it's just so rare that you would see that kind of personal vision and the way the, the language that's used, you get a sense that, you know, here she is recalling this episode when she was in her early 20s when she drowned 
um, her daughter, her firstborn daughter. Um, and she's remembering it decades, decades later, you know, the one thing that I have regretted, you know, in my lifetime. And I just think that's a really powerful um, idea that, you know, when, I mean, part of my impulse for writing this book to begin with is to counter the idea that Chinese don't care about their children, look how insensitive they are, you know, they do this and it's like they're not religious or they don't believe in the soul or whatever, a variety of reasons. But I think her, her narration through her son of this episode, it just encapsulates how difficult it was even for women who did do this, that there is this complicated thing going on where you're regretting, yet you don't want this daughter to follow in your own footsteps, you know, all of those things going on at the same time, which makes it a very human um, and much more, you know, uh, allowing people to feel sympathetic towards the mother rather than thinking, why are Chinese just, you know, don't care about their kids or whatever, you know, no, no human feelings and that kind of thing, um, which is, you know, part of the point of the book. So. That's right. And I, one of the great things the chapter does is really brings us into the question, into a question about her motivations as a mother, but also as a human being, right? So mm-hmm. the chapter uses this story to ask a moral question. And that is, how might we understand what influenced her decision? Um, the kinds of factors that she was weighing when deciding to take this pretty drastic step. Mm-hmm. And you talk here about the importance of gender and the importance of gender, not simply um, in the kind of simplistic way that we might think a re- you know, in terms of preferring a male to a female child, right? Or drowning mm-hmm. a female versus mm-hmm. a male child. But instead, mm-hmm. you're using it here as an analytic tool to think about the larger category of women that are involved and that mm-hmm. Yeah is taking into account when she's making this decision. So mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that because it's, I think, a really important intervention in Mm -hmm. the way that we understand this in terms of gender history. Well, I think a lot of times people tend to think, uh, you know, uh, female infanticide results from patriarchy with a capital P and that it's men oppressing women. But in the course of my research, what's really apparent is that, you know, it's women helping other women at the moment of birth, you know, generally speaking, men aren't involved in this act of birth at all. So it's women with other women who would either be, you know, helping them, say the midwife drown the child, or um, conversely, you know, convincing them not to drown a child. Um, So it's really, um, women are, are definitely involved in making the decision or, you know, kind of, um, just intimately involved in in that front line when the because the you know it, it the what what evidence we have seems to suggest that these would mostly be carried out you know immediately following birth because there's no you know in the pre modern era there's no way to determine sex so you got to wait till the baby comes out to to know whether it's a boy or a girl um, so um, so it's that kind of more complicated picture of birth the site of birth as this um, uh, event that's really involving women first and foremost. And yes, there is this um, 
kind of framework of a larger patriarchal framework and that things can't happen without the husband's consent necessarily. However, you know, um, I really wanted to highlight that women are involved, you know, and what are they speaking from or acting out of their own personal experience, you know, everything that's been drummed into them since they were born. Um, there's a lot, you know, that's, uh, kind of, um, making that a decision that would seem, you know, to be a, if not reasonable, one that made sense in that time and in that place. Great. Thank you. Now, the rest of the chapter um, all kind of expands on this and elaborates it. And I won't ask you to talk about it, but I'll just um, mention for listeners who are interested in this part of the story, you talk about the various ways in this context that people try to ensure the birth of a son, the different methodologies that were used. You talk also about um, who, both who was held responsible for female infanticide in late imperial China, including a discussion of midwives and mothers-in-law, and also who got credit in... Um, the 93 moral tales on infanticide um, that you surveyed for this part of the chapter when um, female infanticide was prevented and often it's mm-hmm. men who got or actually always, right? The mother is never rewarded, but the mother right. always got the credit. Right. So the next chapter actually takes us into or further into the world of male scholars and it looks specifically at how male scholars, with one um, in particular standing out, worked against infanticide through moral reform mm-hmm. of an in their communities. Now, this chapter focuses on the figure of Yuzhi, um, who I, I just had the pleasure of um, meeting in textual person when talking with Toby Meyer. Mm-hmm. Great, great. <laughs> yeah, same guy. Oh, yep. Yuzhi again. Oh, I love yep. him. Yeah. Um, so this focuses on the figure of Yuzhi. He was a kind of doer of good deeds, a philanthropist who advocated for the prevention of female infanticide to and within of the wider public that he was part of. So can you introduce him for us? Um, what is What do we need to understand about you to understand his role in the story? And where is he coming from in terms of his approach to um, female infanticide? Mm-hmm. So um, I should preface this by saying that you know, when I started writing this, I didn't have Toby's book to guide me. So, <laughs> so I was kind of feel, feeling this out in the wilderness myself. Um, and I think for me, uh, I just think of this guy, you know, kind of an older man who ironically himself never had a son, um, you know, had daughters of his own, but he himself never had a son for all his good deeds. Um who failed at the lowest level examination several times, uh, never had that kind of glowing, um, you know, he's not, he's, I mean, I, I, I guess he's famous in the sense that he appears in the historical record, but not famous in the sense that most ordinary people aren't going to know, you know, like, a, you know, Cheng Hongmo or some kind of other um, well-known literati. He wasn't that. Um, so he's just, uh, I think of him as just one of those people that volunteers in your local community, you know, maybe a little bit of a busybody, you know, not terribly creative necessarily, kind of towing the line a little bit, not quite shrill, but, you know, finger wagging a lot because he's basically telling people, you should live your life this way. You should be doing these things. You shouldn't be doing those things, you know very earnest and well-meaning. You know, that's the kind of image I have of him. Um, and in a sense, trying to 
um, improve his community while at the same time making a positive contribution or having some kind of social status in his own life, you know, without, without doing these kinds of philanthropic types of work, you know, what would he be, but yet, you know, even less known, just another, you know, failed examination candidate. Um, so that's where I kind of place him. I don't really see him as um, a well-known person per se when you compare him on the scale of, you know, important literati or anything like that in the 19th century. Well-known en- well en- enough locally. But, um, but what I think is interesting about his approach to infanticide is that um, this really sheds light on what it's like to be this type of figure in Chinese society in the 19th century. He really has this... Um, uh, just, I don't know, a broad-based scattershot approach to philanthropy in that he really wants to do everything. So it's not just prevent infanticide, but it's build bridges, you know, negotiate with bandits so they stop bothering local populations, help uh, people who are um, impoverished, you know, help people who, when there's famine. Um, the, the big text that he's also known for, um, I think it's also mentioned in um, Catherine Edgerton Tarpley's book, um, uh, which is about famine in North China. Um, he's known for a text that's kind of, you know, the, the rebuilding text that Toby's talking about. Um, it's quite influential, you know. So, um, so anyway, he ha- just has all these different interests. And infanticide is a, is a consistent one. But it's not the only one, you know. He's got all these multiple interests, and so it's the idea of being a moral person as a whole, not just don't do this one behavior, don't commit female infanticide, but that there's this whole range of things that it means to be an ethical person um, in this time and place. And that's what I wanted to give readers a sense of, that yes, female infanticide is part of it and a consistent part of it, or preventing it, but there's this whole range of stuff that, you know, he's always talking about. Right. And there's also really interestingly a whole range of media that he's using for mm-hmm. um, this and to advocate for this philanthropic mm-hmm. work. And you bring us into a lot of different um, examples of the different media that he's using, which include, you know, he's advocating for the establishment of community-sponsored foundling homes and mm-hmm. infant protection societies. Um, he's writing um, he's publishing and freely distributing these morality books. He's lecturing on female infanticide. He's also producing mor- moral plays, sort of morality plays. And this is um, what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about. So he's producing these performances, right, these plays. And you talk about one example, and that is Illustration of Giving Birth to a Monster. This is a play against infanticide. Super fascinating. So can you um, talk a little bit about that? Well, so the the real thing is that it's hard for me to actually know. I have the text, right? He's actually printed and published the the kind of script for these little moral plays. They're they're really mini operas. Um, But I don't actually know if this particular one on infanticide was ever performed. But I like to hope, you know, and think that it's out there somewhere or it was some, some, you know, at some point. Uh, Because he wrote a series of like 28 to 30 um, different moral moral plays on different topics. Again, this range of topics. Um, So this one is like all the morality tales, except it's brought to life on the stage. So you have 
the, you know, the evil stepmother. You have the young couple that is just, you know, the father's a little bit weak, a bit of a coward, you know, isn't willing to stand up to his mother who's like, uh, drown the baby, it's another girl. Um, you have the mother who doesn't really say much but is unfortunately just asked to give birth all the time. And then you have this interesting parallel uh, cousin figure, um, basically uh, an, an aunt who is, um, you know, the, the wife of this uh, male figure's, uh, like, husband or cousin or something. And um, she kind of is the positive foil for the negative example that is the main example. And um, although it's her fate never to have sons, because she um, actively tries to prevent the killing of her niece, um, she is then going to be rewarded, you know, within the play karmically by, um, you know, later giving birth to a son, but, you know, implicitly she rescues a a girl from drowning in the river and wants to adopt that unknown girl, you know, into her own family. You know, a a wealthy scholar comes by and says, hey, I've got a son. Why don't we betroth them? You know, just all this stuff that's completely probably not very realistic, but, you know, yet giving hope to people or making them think, hey, should you refrain from drowning your daughter, maybe these good things will happen to you too. But I think the thing that really caught my imagination the most was just imagining this crazy scene. I mean, there's ghosts, there's these, the, when the, the, a killed girl returns as a demon to exact her revenge, you know, she's half snake, half human. And I'm just imagining this in the 19th century on the stage for these village audiences, you know, this clamorous kind of activity on the stage, a scene of giving birth and snake demons. It just seemed so uh, rich and lively to me. I tried to evoke that as much as I could, what that might be like, you know, to, to watch something like that on the stage. Thank you. So as we move to the next chapter, we move to a different set of writings, and this includes uh, one of the texts that you've talked about a little bit as um, really inspiring the project um, from its inception. So we'll get to that in a moment. Now, this chapter looks at the writings of what we might call Western travelers, diplomats, scientists, missionaries, who were all interested in the prevalence of female infanticide in China. Now, one of the important things that I think we need to um, make sure we state here is a really important point that the book is making, which is infanticide was not only happening in China at this point, there was also infanticide elsewhere. So um, what was happening um, in terms of the context of infanticide in Britain at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. so the thing, again, that you know, kind of made me think, oh, this is a good topic for a book, was that at the time when there's no book at the time that I started writing this about infanticide in China, there were like 10, maybe not 10, but there were many books about infanticide in England in the 19th century, in the 18th century, much, much more scholarship had been generated about infanticide in England. And yet, you know, how could it, it was just mind boggling to me that so many books had been written, um, and entire books, mind you, not, not just articles on this subject in England. So clearly it was something that, um, people were concerned about. Um, mostly in, in England, the stereotypical infanticide would be an unwed servant girl, you know, having who knows how gotten pregnant, you know, committing infanticide. And then because she didn't want to besmirch her name or her reputation or whatever. Um, 
and that's just the stereotypical. So the the kind of way that infanticide is discussed and um, uh, thought about has a totally different context. You know, there's kind of this sexual moral context in England. Uh, there's a class thing there. And it's, it's definitely not a gender thing. And that's, you know, a big difference when we come to China and look at the way it's discussed in Chinese texts. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, uh, another scholar said, you know, why Westerners were so interested in infanticide in China was because it was in their own newspapers and, you know, that they brought that with them um, when they were looking, um, it, maybe to say, you see, you know, this happens I mean, they, they made it sound like that, and, and it probably did happen with a much greater frequency in China, but it wasn't as if in the 19th century this was unknown in any country, basically, um, in the West. That's right. So the Western writers that are featured here were attempting to gather different kinds of evidence on the practice of infanticide in China to support mm-hmm. their writings about this and their discussions about this. So you talk about um, these various kinds of evidence, or at least a few different kinds in this chapter. One of those kinds of evidence was really a, a visceral encounter with mm-hmm. the bodies of these abandoned infant corpses, the, the, really the corpses, the bodies of these abandoned and infants, mm-hmm. you talked about um, in this chapter these bone collection towers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. towers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I'll, I'll not ask you to talk too much about that, but I just mm-hmm. want to mark that for listeners. Because, mm-hmm. um, for any readers who are interested in body history and material culture, mm-hmm. and in really the kind of the viscerality of this, it's a it's an extraordinarily powerful image, and you um, both show us um, illustrations and photographs of these, and also. Um, I think photographs, and imagine, or, or a very realistic, yeah, of a bone collection <laughs> tower. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. photographs. It was a it was a sightseeing object. I mean, Western people were kind of fascinated by it and took pictures as part, like see see this when you see the sights, that kind of thing. This baby tower, and they yeah. were they smelled, and so they were um, really discussed in terms of the sensorium of mm-hmm. knowledge making about bodies. So it's uh, it's a really interesting. Um, kind of monument there mm-hmm. that you're bringing up. You also talk about the statistical enumeration of bodies, mm-hmm. so that's an important mm-hmm. part. Um, but what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about, uh, purely in the just in the interest of time, otherwise we, can, mm-hmm. we really could spend mm-hmm. the rest of the time talking about these, um, is the textual evidence about the practice mm-hmm. of female infanticide in Chinese texts. And here's where we come back to Palatra mm-hmm. and his book Infanticide and the Holy Childhood Association in mm-hmm. China. So mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about this book, especially its use of text and image, and what happens mm-hmm. to it after it's produced? Mm-hmm. So, um, this book is uh, basically Palatra was a Jesuit, French Jesuit missionary serving in the Shanghai region, um, and he was attempting. It was part of a conversation, a much larger conversation, and that conversation had to do with what was going on in France. That there were many critics of the Catholic Church at the time in the 19th century. You know, critics of the power that the Catholic Church had, and one of these critics um, said, "You know, all that Catholic missionary stuff about." All these children, you know, or many critics might say this, they were totally exaggerated reports of infanticide in China in order to kind of skim contributions. I mean, that comes up in the next chapter, but skim contributions from us to support Catholic, you know, missionary works. Um, And so 
Alatra's big book is a response to what's happening, you know, that conversation that's happening in France or in Europe at the time. And he's amassing all this evidence in order to say, no, it's not made up. Look at all this stuff I've gathered um, from texts, from everywhere else. And so what he does to introduce readers to this material is that he... Um, translates um, the French, and I'm not sure if it's he who did the translation or another Jesuit missionary or, or maybe a Chinese Jesuit who helped, um, translated these Chinese moral tales into French, including the French versions in the body of the book, um, including often copied illustrative material in his book. And then at the end, he includes this long appendix of actual Chinese excerpts. So this is Chinese, you know, excerpts copied in Chinese, uh, you know, characters in this lengthy appendix. So it makes for a really fascinating text because you wonder who on earth could possibly read this text, right? Not many people would have been fluent in both Chinese and French to be able to comprehend every single one of these texts. So really, it's, you know, I make the argument that the inclusion of the Chinese text is a visual statement um, as much, if not more, as one of actual content because for a French reader, and it appears that most of the readers who responded to this text were all, you know, in Europe um, or, you know, in China, uh, Westerners living in China at the time, um, they would be able to, you know, read the French part, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to read the Chinese text, but seeing it, you know, it's like, well, look at all that original evidence he's got. You know, it's, it's, it's just adds to the sense of, um, conclusiveness or, or, or reality, you know, building his case basically. Um, so the interesting thing about what happens afterwards is that later people who, um, then refer to or cite the text, um, usually only either, you know, excerpt the pictures from, um, from, you know, as kind of standalone, crazy, exotic images of Chinese behaviors, or they excerpt, um, in one case, um, you know, the handwritten Chinese portions. And it's, it just makes for a really striking visual when I represent it that way. And you see this, you know, the, the Dutch scholar who's, you know, probably written it himself, but the handwriting, you know, just, looks like a child's Chinese, you know, handwriting. It just it brings home the point that this is the circuitous route of this information coming to be understood and known in the West. Um, it's not this kind of, the expertise is self-fashioned. And I just want to underline that, you know, it's, it's a clear point, but it's, I just want to underline the self-fashioning of sinological expertise, because really it's being made during the 19th century, that kind of that type of person, the sinological expert. That's right. Thank you. So as we move to the next chapter, we move to a chapter that looks very carefully at the concern over Chinese infanticide by 19th century Euro-American school children. So this is another chapter that brings out a really, really fascinating archive of material that's really meant for children, to encourage children to donate to the cause. So mm -hmm. these children are galvanized by a particular charity that you introduce here. And this is a charity that's translated as the Holy Childhood Association. Mm -hmm. This is a charity that was established in 18. 
1943 to support overseas missionaries in their rescue and redemption, in quotes, um, of Chinese children through baptism. And you talk in this chapter about the importance of baptism for missionaries as they're conceptualizing um, children in general, but also um, infants and infanticide in China in particular. So the charity prompts Catholic children all over the world um, to donate to the cause, and the way that the charity manages to do this is by deploying images and texts that are depicting in different ways widespread infanticide in China. Mm -hmm. So you give us an example of a short catechism, um, which is really fascinating itself as a text. And you also then give us a really detailed analysis of these illustrated devotional cards that are using images um, that are geared specifically to children to involve children in this process. So can you talk about these cards as mm-hmm. sources and, mm-hmm. and the work that they're doing in terms of the art mm-hmm. that you're making here? Mm-hmm. So um, first I have to say that uh, Henrietta Harrison also has a really good article in the AHR about the Santamfonts or the Holy Childhood Association. Um, so that can give more of a background to, you know, to the general you know, uh, kind of activities of the Santamfonts in China as well. Um, so the holy cards that I found are these devotional cards. Um, like finding them in and of itself was this other adventure that I had <laughs> because um, they had been mentioned. I'd seen them, you know, the one of the things that the organization did is it had this monthly journal or bi-monthly journal that they sent out to all of its members, youth members. And within that journal, there were frequently referred to um, these devotional cards um, and that you would get one once you fulfilled one year's subscription or one year's membership, or, you know, you donated your 60 cents um, for an entire year. Um, so again, I knew they existed. They'd been mentioned by this um, French journalist in a, in, a, in a newspaper article, a series of newspaper articles um, that he was critiquing these images as being exaggerated again. But again, I, you know, I even went to the Santamont's archives. I could not find any visual representations. So, you know, I thought, again, once in a while, you'd see one here, one there. But um, I actually managed to find all these cards, you know, in the internet age. Um, I I was, I, I, I was in Paris, I was I, uh, I think I was looking, just walking by the Seine or something, they have these booksellers, and I see devotional cards, and I thought, oh, you know, this is like a uh, kind of a flea market thing or a, you know, maybe you can go, maybe I can go to, to find some of these at a flea market. So I went to different flea markets or at least one in Paris looking for these devotional cards. Do you have anything like this? They, they all had no idea what I was talking about, but that kind of got me on this path. Um, and I looked on a online European hobbyist website and lo and behold, you know, in the miracle age of the internet, um, I found all these examples of devotional cards. And I think the sellers have no idea what they're selling. You know, they, they just know this is from the Santamfons, this Catholic charity organization that still exists to this day. But they don't, you know, nowhere on the text does it, in, on the card does it say China. It's just visually implied through all the clues that you see, all the cues on the little boys, the slanty eyes of the you know, the, the farmer's kind of uh, peasant hat, um, you know, palm trees, all these things that indicate this is not Europe. You know, this is a different place. And it's an understood, you know, um, implication of China because all the other texts from the Sanhofons emphasize China as like the, the main site of infanticide. Um, 
So, um, yeah, I just, it kind of became this obsession where I now every so often just trawl the site to see <laughs> if I can find any more to add to my collection because really every single stage of the acquisition of Chinese children in order to baptize them is depicted in these devotional cards from the act of finding um, to the act of uh, sometimes they found abandoned children. Sometimes they claim that um, Chinese parents sold their kids to them. So there's you know an image of uh, parents being paid off by a priest to the, the act of baptism itself, which was the whole purpose of collecting these Chinese children. Um, you know, all of these stages um, are, are and, and the final stage in this whole story is um, the depiction of a European child donating her money, her carefully hoarded, uh, you know, centimes and sous um, to uh, alleviate the problem of infanticide. In the, in the background of that final image, you see, you know, here she is doing her good in the, in the foreground. And in the background, you see this, you know, Asiatic man about to chuck a child away. And a priest is grabbing his arm with a bag of money in his hand. You know, and you can hear the conversation, but don't do it. You know, here's some money. Let me save this child's life. So um, it's just a, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you don't believe in that it could exist until you see it. And then it just isn't why I love the 19th century, though. There's just so much rich material that um, uh, staggers the imagination. You know, the other image I love is this um, photograph of uh, Canadian children dressed up and a a French priest dressed up as Chinese children, Um, you know, kind of in this... Um, they kind of had this this rally to to raise money for the Saint Enfants, and they dressed up in Chinese costumes. And the priest even had a fake queue. I mean, they had that when they were in China as well. But um, it's just the those images really do speak volumes because they 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 kind of share with the reader that really drives home the point in a way that just my words alone simply cannot. I mean, it kind of is reinforces why those, t- those images were used in the first place. <laughs> but, you know, I try to let them speak as much as they can. That's right. And I think one of the really interesting things that comes out of that chapter is you're also showing that the images were also, I think you, as you put it, making manifest the actual mm-hmm. bodies of these um, mm-hmm. unwanted Chinese children and, and communicating and materializing these bodies as images mm-hmm. for the children and the other people who are seeing them in ways that mere text um, wasn't necessarily going to do by itself. So there's mm-hmm. a really nice uh, reflection or resonance between both the work that the chapter is doing mm-hmm. and also the content that the chapter is talking mm-hmm. about. And just as works of art, I just think they're beautiful. They're just these gorgeous etchings. And I'm afraid that the, you know, the quality of the printing doesn't even show that as clearly as they actually are. But the, that they're beautifully engraved cards that I just think they're beautiful, you know, beautiful items in and of themselves. So as we come to the last body chapter before the conclusion, this is a chapter that considers the consequences of perceptions of female infanticide in China, tracing their impacts into the early 20th century and contextualizing them within kind of emerging national consciousness. So this really kind of pushes the story forward and looks at the way it's changing. Mm-hmm. You talk about here a competition between foreign and Chinese orphanages. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about here um, 
there is a massacre in 1870. So you're showing here most 19th century Chinese audiences are actually opposing the claims of these Catholic missionaries who are trying to gather and then baptize these mm -hmm. unwanted Chinese children. And they're accused of kidnapping the children, um, killing the children. And you talk about this massacre in which 20 foreigners, including I think 10 nuns, are actually mm -hmm. killed by a Chinese mob that's convinced they're mistreating the children, not trying to help the children. Mm -hmm. Now, you'd go from there to take us into um, different ways that Chinese thinkers, right, that in China are taking up or not um, and responding to these ideas um, that are circulating from what we, again, might consider um, Western or, or mm -hmm. American mm -hmm. sources. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, um, there's a kind of there's a kind of proto-nationalist stance that you describe here that's mm -hmm. trying to find Chinese and not European solutions to the problem. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there are, or at the same time, there are some thinkers who are trying to adapt these ideas um, rather than, you know, sort of mm -hmm. pushing them aside. Mm -hmm. Now, this adaptation is happening, again, through another really interesting source for looking at what's happening here, and that's treaty port newspapers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could you, um, maybe as a way of bringing out some of the um, really interesting points in this chapter. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what is this um, difference of approach in terms of how um, different Chinese thinkers are taking up or not these Western ideas, and how are newspapers important um, for shaping this part of the story? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, Barbara Mittler has this, uh, you know, really solid book about um, uh, the Shambhala as a newspaper. Um, developing in Shanghai over the late 19th century and early 20th century. And she kind of has this phrase that it's a, I can't remember exactly, but it's a slow adaptation of Chinese forms. So though we think of the newspaper in its modern form as something quite new to China, really they were doing this kind of mishmash adaptation of old, old forms of Chinese texts into this newish form of a newspaper. And it, you know, gradually had this, um, this uh, evolution or shift um, into something that we would recognize more as a newspaper today. Um, and so I think I could really uh, sense or get a sense of that shift in some of these stories about infanticide because some of them sound, uh, earlier ones sound a lot like morality tales, except now in newspaper form. But then, you know, as you go through the years and, you know, an example here and there, you see these um, stories that, don't quite sound like the old way of talking about infanticide. That is, um, one article is written from the perspective of a single author. He's talking about a specific encounter he actually had where he witnessed he himself, or at least, you know, in the way the article is laid out, he himself has witnessed a, a girl being burned to death um, because she was unwanted by her parents who had had several daughters in a row. Um, and you get the sense of indignation that is resulting from this specific case and not only that, you know, that particular magistrate needs to do something about it. So there's a sense that this is happening in real time, not some kind of um, moral universe time that's kind of, you know, timeless, essentially, right? So you have a real sense with the newspapers of a growing um, uh, fixed nature in time and space that you don't really have with the morality book. So that's one of the interesting kinds of uh, ways that these stories are changing. Um, the other thing I found was like an adaptation of Chinese uh, medical uh, beliefs with mapped onto or 
um, overlaid with um, Western anatomical ideas about, you know, where children or how babies are born or where children come from. And again, it's this, it's, it's a hybrid. It's, it's kind of a crazy hybrid saying that, you know, because there was this, um, uh, Benjamin Hobson had this uh, Chinese um, midwifery text um, written, you know, in order to instruct Chinese people and um, doctors about um, uh, human anatomy. And um, this this newspaper article I found said, you know, it describes the anatomical form of ovaries and uterus and all this stuff, but then it says, well, now, you know, so it sounds kind of, okay, that, that sounds like something we as moderns would be familiar with. But then it talks about how, well, now if the egg descends from the right, then it's going to be a girl. If it descends from the left, it's going to be a boy, which is mapped onto, a, you know, this yin and yang idea about left and right and one being yin and one being yang. Um, and so it's those kinds of moments that I just love. I love the the space that is this weird mix that is um, uh, neither one thing or another that doesn't necessarily, it also to me suggests that it's not just here comes, you know, treaty port westerners sharing all their medical knowledge and, you know, Chinese just adapted. It's always this negotiating process, this we're going to pick and choose what we want, what fits with what we already know. You know, it puts much more agency I think, um, in the Chinese, uh, on the side of the Chinese who are reading these texts and thinking through these things, because ultimately, I mean, that's part of the book too, they have to, to translate it or adapt it or adopt it in order for it to ever, you know, come into uh, Chinese society. Now, since this is a book that came out of, at least um, in part, an interest in gender and history, right, gender in China, um, this is a, an explicit issue that comes up later on in this chapter, too. So I'd feel remiss if not at least giving us an opportunity to talk a little bit about that before we close. You're identifying in this chapter an important shift, um, and that is female infanticide in this context becomes a woman's issue. So mm-hmm. what does that mean, and can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. So um, this is more in the early 20th century rather than the late 19th century. But by the early 20th century, you really hear a lot or you see a lot more discussion of female infanticide as a woman's problem, like a few, one of the funi winti, like so, so one among many. Again, you know, concubinage or, um, you know, foot binding, foot binding being the big ultimate one. But um, but. What's really interesting is that in the course of talking about women's issues as a whole, it seems like female infanticide gradually seems to die down as one of the major concerns of someone like Yuzi. So his his analog in the 20th century, it seems like, would be championing all these women's issues, but as a result, like the, the, you know, the airtime for infanticide drastically seems to di- diminish, at least in, as far as what I can see. You know, other issues become uh, much more part of the conversation, whether it's, you know, whatever the early 20th century issue is about chastity or about free love or about sexuality or some of these other topics that really come to the foreground in the 20th century. Um, you know, there's, there's less time then to talk about female infanticide is one of the problems. And I think that might be um, just uh, just uh, uh, because 
some of these other issues would be facing grown women, you know, whether they have the right to participate to vote or, you know, choose who they want to marry or any of those things. Um, so the, the advocacy for this helpless child kind of seems to some, you know, in this particular context, anyway, falls away somewhat. Thank you. So as we come to the end of that chapter as well, I'll just mention for listeners, um, without necessarily asking you to talk about it, purely in the interest of time and not keeping you for another two hours, which again, we easily mm-hmm. could do. There's so much in here. Um, but this is Beth's just to say there's another important shift that you're identifying and characterizing in this chapter, and that is a shift as female infanticide also becomes a population issue. Mm-hmm. So readers who are interested in that aspect of modern history, the emerging of the population as an object and the way that that is imbricated in what happens to ideas and discourses about female infanticide can find a really interesting discussion of that at the end of chapter Mm -hmm. five. So in the conclusion, um, you are tracing the later stages of the story into the 20th and early 21st centuries. Right? Mm-hmm. So the chapter considers ways that the rapid economic development and state family uh, planning policies really mm-hmm. reshaped this discourse of female mm-hmm. infanticide in the post-Mao reform era. Mm-hmm. And I'll just mention three things that you bring up here, again, for listeners, um, but without asking you to, to talk mm-hmm. about them. So you talk about the importance of the sex selective abortion uh, of, of sex selective abortion and the one child policy you talk about the PRC government's attitude toward foreign adoption and a program called the care for girls program so mm-hmm. readers who are particularly interested in these more modern contemporary manifestations of some of these issues can look to the conclusion where there's a really interesting extended discussion of all of these in this larger historical context mm-hmm. so Michelle Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking for an hour. Well, it's been fun. It's it a lot of fun. Oh, it's been fun <laughs> for me too. Um, now there's a ton of material in the book, including, you know, those bits that I just narrated instead of asking you to talk about, but also including a lot of really fascinating sources and case studies and points that you're making throughout the chapters. We did talk at a little bit more length about, um, that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about. So given that, um, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, uh, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers. Yeah, well, I guess um, in thinking about it, I, I, I think throughout writing this book and writing the dissertation, but really writing this book, um, one of the challenges for me was always this continuous struggle between um, acknowledging the historical, long historical past of female infanticide and preference for um, sons, which continues to this day. You know, obviously there's a connection between um, this 19th century past and, you know, the contemporary phenomenon of these crazy sex ratio imbalances. You know, there is that sense of historical continuity in some way. But at the same time, part of my job as a historian is to give us context. You know, how is the 19th century same but different? You know, that infanticide is different than sex-selective abortion in some ways, right? The, the motives might be similar, but the context surrounding those acts in the 19th century and the 21st century are completely different. So um, I think it was... It, even as I, you know, talk to you now, I think I'm not sure that I ever could resolve that conflict in me, but I felt it in writing the book that, um, you know, 
my job is to differentiate and to be a historian is to really give that rich specificity of the 19th century. But um, at the same time, you know, while there are these connections, you know, and so it was always this, this idea, am I, am I emphasizing the connection too much? Or is it, you know, um, it's something that I think um, any historian that deals with a topic that has a a contemporary manifestation would also struggle with, you know, other things like foot binding doesn't really happen anymore. So you can treat it as a historical past, but female infanticide, you can't just treat it as historical past because it's, it's cousin form of sex selective abortion. You know, it still occurs. So that, that I found uh, kind of a something I, I continue to struggle with, even as the book is printed and done, and you know <laughs> it's out. But um, that's one of the kind of central challenges I think I faced. Thank you. So now that the book is out and printed and done and, and mm-hmm. out there, and congratulations! It's thank you, thank you. Book, thank I hope you. it's clear, um, just even if just from the conversation. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently um, inspiring you? And, and what? Yeah, I there's. And now, you know, like Monty Python, and now for something completely different. <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, when I was doing the infanticide book, everyone's like, oh, man, what a topic, you know. And so I've turned to something quite different. I mean, I still maintain my core commitments as a gender historian, um, but I'm turning to a different time in a different space. I'm actually interested in um, writing about a cookbook author in Taiwan in the 1960s. 70s and 80s. Her name is Fu Peimei, and listeners who know anything about Chinese cooking or about um, Taiwan uh, culture or food will have heard of her. Um, but um, her, you know, one of the frustrations in writing this book was that it's, I'm so interested in gender, but there was so little in the way of source material actually, I mean, nothing in the way of source material actually written by women, right, till we get to the 21st century. So, um, so that's something that was just a continual frustration. I really wanted to do a new project that I could, you know, talk about women, write about women, you know, really um, talk to women. You know, that's part of this really contemporary project is um, having a chance to do oral histories as well. But, um, you know, this woman was known as like the Julia Child of Chinese cooking. Um, but her career spans that shift from, you know, the rest of the world recognizing Taiwan as the, you know, uh, diplomatic presence of China to the shift to the PRC. So the mapping of food and cooking on top of this political story um, centered on Taiwan and shifts in gender that occur in this post-war period. That's my new thing. So, you know, it's kind of a different direction in some ways. It still has uh, gender at its center, but um, I'm just exploring a lot of different ideas having to do with Chinese identity and food and um, transgenerational connections. You know, it's still in the early stages, so um, so there's a lot of ways it could go. But it's just been so much fun to think about, you know, just a totally new set of um, ideas and interests. And I'm definitely a kind of a, you know, there are hedgehogs and foxes uh-huh. in the scholarly world, and I'm <laughs> definitely not a hedgehog type, so... <laughs> so. Well, this new project sounds completely awesome also. So I'll wish you the best of luck on that. And let me know when that's done. Yes. I'd love to talk with you about that one. Right. It's fabulous. Thank you very much. So, Michelle, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. um, And thanks very much for making the time. Okay. Thanks so much, Carla. This was a lot of fun. 
You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.